Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 208th episode of the Nauticast, titled Dressing Dark, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Sansa 5, in which Sansa finally, finally escapes the Lannisters thanks to her shining chivalric benefactor, uh, Peter Baelish? No, that can't be right. Uh, he's a better hero than Gregor Clegane, the Bloody Mummers, and I think that's about it. He got over that bar very deep, deep underground. <laughs> Good for him. Our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron and friend Lo, who asks, I've been thinking a bit about Baylor the Blessed recently. What's your guys' take on him? Extreme zealot? Mentally ill? Secret third thing? For instance, him locking his sisters in the Maiden Vault supposedly was so they wouldn't tempt him, but I know Girls Gone Canon have speculated that it might also have been to neutralize them politically. I thought that would be a good question for this episode because we talked about Baylor the Blessed a little bit when he came up in the the conversation between Tyrion and Oberyn in the recent Sansa chapter about that kind of era of Targaryen kings. So yeah, what's what's your take on, on Baylor the First? Uh, I'm kind of inclined to go with the Girls Gone Canon take. Um, I do think that, um, like, just looking at our own world's history, a lot of times when we talk about, like, major religious, like, schisms or conflicts, you know, like the schism between East and West, or even things like monophysitism or iconoclasm, a lot of those things are covers for deeper political machinations, um, you know, between different locations, poles of power, different groups or camps um, that kind of use different religiosity or perspectives to forward their own political or material um, agendas. So I'm more inclined to believe that and I'm also inclined to believe why kind of a religious ideal of Baylor the Blessed would be perpetuated over the generations in Westeros. Um, it helps kind of re- re- reaffirm the existing power structures like you know the church and um, the faith rather. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, I'm inclined to take the kind of historical cynical take um, and atheistic take on all of that stuff. Um, I, it's very likely that Baylor the Blessed was a pious man to a degree. I'm not saying that he isn't, you know, did, wasn't a man of faith. Um, but I think a lot of these things tend to be cover for political machination. So that's kind of where I fall on him. I agree, especially with uh, Baylor's reputation being deliberately inflated over time to serve the political interests of the faith, who have always had this uneasy relationship with the crown when it wasn't just outright fire and blood under Magor, of course. It's always been this kind of uneasy marriage between this pre-Targaryen institution and this religion that the Targaryens adopted. But there are always hints of an older faith in an older way, which was given more uh, specific voice in the show when it comes to the prophecy of ice and fire. Like, that has nothing to do with the faith. That has nothing to do with the seven gods. That's kind of an older spiritual prophetic religious idea that the Targaryens are connected to, maybe at a, at a genetic level, who knows what, what went down in Valyria. So there's always been this kind of awkward relationship, and it served both Targaryen and faith interests in holding up Baylor as this ideal of how the two can come together, and the Targaryens can be as, as pious as anyone else, despite the whole, you know, twin-cest thing. <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of why he did what he did, I think that is deliberately veiled from us. I think we're supposed to have kind of multiple competing takes. And I think the religious and political angles can work well together. I think it can definitely be that Baylor sincerely believed in everything he was doing and and uh, tortured himself for his own uh, desires. But I think the people around him could easily manipulate him in order to uh, to keep a certain a certain 
gendered view of power or a certain just more he's easier to control i think than his his uh his female relatives would have been i can you can see the hand of his his uncle viserys the second as Tyrion and oberon were talking about potentially uh, eventually killed his nephew when he got too problematic i think there is it it ties into the idea of a monarch as someone who can have absolute power or no power really depending on how of how the government is arranged around them like you have someone like like you can even happen within one king like Magor is like on one hand the most active version of a king someone who just gets on his dragon and goes around killing people on the other hand he might have been like a a Robert Strong-esque pawn of his mother by the time his his uh, his reign was over and I think Baylor shows us that in a different respect that he was on the one hand people kind of lived and died on his whim which is kind of terrifying on the other hand it, he might have he might have, like Eris towards the end, he might have just been a guy muttering to himself in a room, and it really took other people acting on his wishes to make make that important. So yeah, I, I, I come down definitely that there were, were political machinations going beyond the scene that maybe maybe Baylor himself wasn't even fully aware of at the end of the day and might have been done you know, without his knowledge or just without his consent. I think that's, I think that's entirely possible. So thanks to Lo for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our sworn sword and higher tier patrons get to ask us questions that we answer at the top of our regular Song of Ice and Fire episodes. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, Sansa 5, so let's jump into the synopsis. Far across the city, a bell began to toll. Sansa felt as though she were in a dream. Joffrey is dead, she told the trees, to see if that would wake her. And the trees are like, yeah, duh, we can see the future, but thanks anyway. <laughs> Technically, Sansa didn't see Joffrey die. She fled the throne room as he was tearing at his throat, which was just too horrible a sight for her to see. Tanda Stokorth was also leaving, and complimented Sansa on being so kind as to weep for a man who spurned her and married her off to a dwarf. Yeah, those wouldn't even make the top hundred Joffrey crimes, but fine, she's, she's trying to be nice. Sansa swallows her laughter and keeps crying. Not even sure why. Joffrey's dead, after all, and unlike Beric and Catelyn and Jon, he's not coming back. So far, anyway, that would be that would be a creepy white once the others show up, send undead Joffrey against us. The gods are cruel to take him so young and handsome at his own wedding feast, Lady Tanda had said to her. The gods are just, thought Sansa. Rob had died at a wedding feast as well. It was Rob she wept for. Him and Marjorie. Poor Marjorie, twice wed and twice widowed. Well, she could end up thrice widowed if she outlives Talman. Go for the gold, girl. Don't let anybody hold you back. Sansa quickly changes into the clothes she has kept hidden in the godswood. Darker and warmer clothes, as Dantos advised her. The gods heard my prayer, she thought. She felt so numb and dreamy. My skin has turned to porcelain, to ivory, to steel. Ah, beautiful writing there. Porcelain, ivory, and steel is my favorite Indigo Girls album. <laughs> When Sansa takes off her hairnet, she sees that one of the stones that Dantos claimed were black amethysts from a shy is missing. Sansa promptly and relatably has a panic attack about it. She tells herself that the stone must just have fallen out somewhere. Until she remembers that Dantos said the hairnet was magic, that it would take her home, and that she had to wear it specifically tonight. She is suddenly terrified that he lied about all of it and isn't even coming to rescue her. Well, half right, Sansa. Dantos was lying, but he's still here, drunk off his ass as usual. Your sweet jonquil, I've come. Your Florian has come, don't be afraid. Sansa pulled away from his touch. You said I must wear the hairnet. The silver net with... What sort of stones are those? Amethysts. Black amethysts from a shy, milady. They are no amethysts, are they? Are they? You lied. Black amethysts, he swore. There was magic in them. 
There was murder in them. Softly. Softly, my lady, softly. No murder. He choked on his pigeon pie. Ah, nice little preview of the strategy for the defense at Tyrion's trial. The pigeons did it. That pigeon right there. Sansa accuses Dantos of killing Joffrey, but he denies it and tells her to hurry before Cersei has her arrested along with Tyrion. Sansa follows along, wondering if Tyrion really killed Joffrey. It's not like there was any love lost between the boy king and his uncle twice over. She quickly realizes that she will be blamed along with Tyrion, especially given how many solid motivations for regicide Joffrey has given her. Dantos warns Sansa to keep quiet, although maybe he should have warned himself before he started drinking that day. He's so wasted that Sansa has to help him down the stairs. Dantos, Tyrion, Sandor. Will Sansa ever get to stop babysitting alcoholics? Maybe she'll just become one herself. There's your bittersweet ending, Sansa in a large glass of white wine. Sansa sees that Dantos is wearing his knightly surcoat under his cloak. She wonders why he'd risk his life by defying Joffrey like that, until she remembers what just happened to Joffrey. Dantos says he wanted to be a knight for this, at least. By which I guess he means selling Sansa to Littlefinger for drinking money. Oh, so knightly. Such chivalry. They cross a courtyard and enter a gallery full of suits of armor, where Dantos lights a taper. As they hurried past, the taper's light made the shadows of each scale stretch and twist. The Hollow Knights are turning into dragons, she thought. I never played Hollow Knight. Who knew it was about Dantos Holler this whole time? Dantos leads Sansa outside the castle walls, where they find themselves on top of a cliff. We must climb down, Sir Dantos said. At the bottom, a man is waiting to row us out to the ship. I'll fall. Bran had fallen, and he had loved to climb. Okay, to be fair to Bran, he was pushed. Sansa doesn't have any Lannisters waiting behind her to push her, although she will if she keeps waiting up here. Dantos shows her steps carved into the stone and begs her to climb down so he can save her as she saved him. Sansa agrees, as long as he goes first. She climbs down the only way she can, step by step, telling herself to be brave. It's over before she knows it. Dantos leads her to a man waiting in a small boat hidden in the ruins of a much larger one. Dantos limped up to him, puffing. Oswell? No names, the man said. Especially not last names. No way Sansa gets in that boat if she knows who uh, Oswell is daddy of. The mysterious man rows them downstream, past what's left of all the ships broken and burned during the Battle of Blackwater. They pass out of the river and into the bay, leaving the lights and sounds of King's Landing behind them. How far must we go? she asked. No talk. The oarsman was old, but stronger than he looked, and his voice was fierce. There was something oddly familiar about his face, though Sansa could not say what it was. Ah, I knew it, he's Benjamin. Dantos breaks the no-talking rule right away, because he's Dantos, when has he ever done anything right? Sansa stays silent as the first rays of daylight highlight a trading galley waiting ahead of them. Sansa and Oswell clamber up a rope ladder dropped over the side, while Dantos stays behind in the boat. Sansa was trembling. She's cold, she heard someone say. He took off his cloak and put it around her shoulders. There, is that better, my lady? Rest easy, the worst is past and done. She knew the voice. Okay, that has to be Benjen. <laughs> Sadly, no, it's Littlefinger, accompanied by his sidekick, Lothor Brune. Lord Peter, Dantos called from the boat. Mm, I must needs row back before they think to look for me. Peter Baelish put a hand on the rail. Ah, but first you'll want your payment. Ten thousand dragons, was it? Ten thousand. Dantos rubbed his mouth with the back of his hand. As you promised, my lord. Sir Lothor, the reward. Lothor Brune dipped his torch. Three men stepped to the gunwale, raised crossbows, fired. One bolt took Dantos in the chest as he looked up, punching through the left crown on his surcoat. The others ripped into throat and belly. It happened so quickly, neither Dantos nor Sansa had time to cry out. I would love if right then Littlefinger like, turned to Lothor Brune and was like, No, dude, I meant pay him. What the hell? 
As Lothor sets the boat and Nantos' body on fire, Sansa turns away and has herself a little grief puke. Sadly, she's getting used to those. Littlefinger tells her that Dantos doesn't deserve her grief. Or her puke. The knight slash jester told, sold her to Littlefinger and would have sold news of her to Varys as soon as he ran low on drinking money again. Besides, everything Dantos did for Sansa, he did on Littlefinger's orders, right down to the Florian and Jonquil roleplay. Do you perchance recall what I said to you that day your father sat at the Iron Throne? The moment came back to her vividly. You told me that life was not a song, that I would learn that one day, to my sorrow. She felt tears in her eyes, but whether she wept for Sir Dantos Hollard, for Joff, for Tyrion, or for herself, Sansa could not say. Is it all lies, forever and ever, everyone and everything? Well, short answer, yes with an if. Long answer, no with a but. Littlefinger escorts Sansa to her cabin, asking if she enjoyed the wedding feast, including the jousting dwarves it turns out he hired. I had to send to Bravos for them, and hide them away in a brothel until the wedding. The expense was exceeded only by the bother. It is surprisingly difficult to hide a dwarf, and Joffrey... You can lead a king to water, but with Joff one had to splash it about before he realized he could drink it. When I told him about my little surprise, his grace said, Why would I want some ugly dwarfs at my feast? I hate dwarfs. I had to take him by the shoulder and whisper, not as much as your uncle will. Just a guess here, but I doubt Littlefinger had to try that hard to get Joffrey to execute Ned. Your grace should cut off his head because stop right there, you had me at cut off. <laughs> Sansa recalls that Tyrion has been arrested. She is practically divorced now, which is what she wanted, but she is not exactly thrilled about how it happened. Littlefinger shows Sansa her cabin, complete with featherbed and fresh clothes. Sansa realizes that he has been preparing this for a long time, and finally asks why he wanted Joffrey dead, given that Joffrey gave him Harrenhal. Littlefinger shrugged. I had no motive. Besides, I am a thousand leagues away in the Vale. Always keep your foes confused. If they are never certain who you are or what you want, they cannot know what you are like to do next. Sometimes the best way to baffle them is to make moves that have no purpose, or even seem to work against you. Remember that, Sansa, when you come to play the game. Alright, well, that's a whole bunch of bullshit right there, but we'll get to that later. Littlefinger finally brings up Catelyn. Must have been killing him to wait this long. He blames stiff-necked Tully Honor for keeping him apart from his beloved cat. But hey, at least he got to take her virginity. Fact check, extremely false. Littlefinger says that in a better world, Sansa might have been his daughter. Sure, better. Let's go with that. We, somehow we can make Westeros even worse. Put Joffrey from your mind, sweetling. Dantos, Tyrion, all of them. They will never trouble you again. You are safe now. That's all that matters. You are safe with me and sailing home. That is A Storm of Swords, Sansa 5. What do you think of this one, sir? Sansa 5 is the spiritual sequel to Arya 11, the coda to their respective murder weddings. Like its predecessor, the reader is still picking up the pieces of what happened in the last chapter. It's brisk and action-y, and it finally unmoors Sansa from her imprisonment in King's Landing and marks the ascendancy of Peter Baelish, a secondary rogue so far, to the likes of Joffrey and Tywin, but by the end of A Storm of Swords, he will be properly squared up as a big bad. And it'll likely be Sansa Stark in the end who strikes down this titan. Certainly if the, the ghost of High Heart's prophecy has anything to say about it, she will be. And this is a major pivot point in Sansa's story. We've been waiting for her to escape King's Landing for two books now, ever since Ned went down swinging in the throne room. And now, finally, she gets out, learning in the process who has been pulling Dantos' strings all along. Turns out it was the same guy who brought Ned down in the throne room. What a coincidence. Her story takes a whole new direction from here, toward the Vale and beyond, back home eventually to Winterfell. And yet, when I come back to this chapter, it's, it's not even the big plot stuff I gravitate to. It's the atmosphere, the mood. 
It's the ringing bells and the howling wind, the boats in the mist, the stones slipping under Sansa's fingers as she climbs. George could have written a more dry, logistical version of this chapter, and he does more of that next time we check in with Sansa and find out who actually killed Joffrey. But in this chapter, I think he wanted more than anything to immerse us in Sansa's point of view, all numb and drifting from one moment to the next. It feels like she's dreaming. And what gives this chapter its power, I think, is that Sansa thinks this ought to be a good dream, given what's happening, but it feels like a nightmare instead. The bells toll for Sansa Stark's escape, and part of me wonders if George Martin drew some inspiration from Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, at least its ending, in which the protagonist Robert Jordan sacrifices himself for his love Maria as they flee from fascist-backed Francoish troops. The fate of Sansa and Ser Dantos could be read as a very perverse twisting of that. But rather, similar to the drums pounding, pounding, pounding during the Red Wedding, the bells in this chapter add a similar tune with George's use of ringing, 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 giving a soundtrack to this chapter, a cadence repeated when she notes that Joffrey is dead, dead, dead. And sound carries even better over water, so the bells are tolling all the way through this chapter until Baelish's ship slips out of the bay. While madness reigns in the Red Keep, the human heart wars with itself inside Sansa. She is crying. She is happy. She is a good person. Joffrey is dead. Let's go dancing. The gods are good. This is system shock being processed by Sansa, a cavalcade of interiority that can't even be processed because the exterior world demands she run. The exterior world also demands she harden as she says her skin turns from porcelain to ivory to steel. In her gilded cage in King's Landing, we could observe the interior changes to Sansa, but her outside had to remain constant. For the first time, free of this imprisonment, we can start to see that change on the outside too. It's almost as if the girl who was so distant as to not be there in the previous Tyrion chapter is all of a sudden a whole new character, snapped back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. <laughs> as we'll discuss when we talk about the hairnet in a minute, she can literally let her hair down for the first time. I wonder how Mom's spaghetti would be in her case. I don't know. I don't know if Catelyn would pull off a pasta. Mm. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. And yeah, it's it is Sansa kind of coming back to herself in a way she hasn't been in a long time, at least not for any length of time. And and she she's not sure how to feel about it. And we get this emotional conflict that I think is meant to to guide the reader through how we feel about what we've just seen. And we get we get Tanda Stokeworth there to provide kind of the the conventional wisdom, something for us to react against. She just assumes Sansa is innocent, which is interesting because like everyone else immediately assumes that she must be guilty. Why else? Why else is she running? Why else? You know, would, would Tyrion be be clamming up about her? And Tanda Stokeworth, I think, for kind of gendered reasons, like looks at Sansa and realizes, no, she's not running because she's guilty. She's running because she's upset. And I think Tanda, of course, doesn't know why Sansa is running specifically, where she's going. But she she locks into the kind of that that messy emotional torrent that Sansa is going through, even though she's wrong about why. Like, <laughs> and on one hand, yeah, it's very silly to think Sansa is crying for Joffrey. Like, even someone who is just marginally observed things at court over the last year plus would know, no, that's ridiculous. On the other hand, as Sansa herself asks, well, then why is she crying at all? Like, what is this emotion if it's not her crying for this monster? Like, how how is she supposed to process what it is she's going through? Is she in control of her feelings or not? And you get these these bells in mourning, the kind of, as you're saying, this kind of this rhythmic pattern that grounds uh, the first half or so of this chapter. And it is, it's partly ironic on George's part that the, we have these mourning bells for, for a character that no one really mourns, like with Pycelle declaring him the noblest child who ever lived at Tyrion's trial. Like, even Pycelle doesn't actually believe that. He's just playing his part and buttering up to Tywin and Cersei. 
But I think also partially those morning bells are sincere on George's part. As, as bad as Joffrey was, someone just died. And what Sansa's realizing is that there's no there's no tidy way for her to deal with that and wrap that into an empowering narrative where this is really what she wanted. And so she has to kind of deflect that. And she says she's she's mourning for Rob and she's mourning for Marjorie. And I think partially that's true, that this is just kind of the ripple effects of everything she's had to feel recently. And she's mourning the the loss of innocence as a whole. But I think I think that's also her trying not to deal with the fact that she genuinely took no joy from seeing Joffrey suffer, which she might have thought she would. And all summed up in that, that beautiful turn of phrase, uh, porcelain to, to ivory to steel. That's what Sansa thinks her her skin has become. And it's it's great because it's, I think it's really ambiguous. Like on one hand, that's that's positive. She's become, she's developed armor, you know, the, the world's not going to be able to touch her again. She, she's growing up. On the other hand, it's it comes as her way of explaining her own kind of disassociation to the point of feeling disembodied. Like, she needs to be in that position to kind of keep going, as you were saying, her body kind of needs to be on the run while her brain catches up. But it's also like she's, you know, turning to steel, and that always evokes whenever that comes up in stories like losing your emotions, losing your humanity, becoming kind of a machine. And we don't want to see that happen to her either, because that way lies Littlefinger. Sansa dresses dark and warm, and the thick green cloak over her brown clothes just screams the cloaks of Lothlorien to me, given to the Fellowship of the Ring by Galadriel. If they can conceal her like they do Sam and Frodo at the Black Gate, I think it'll work out just fine. Speaking of working out just fine, let's give it up for the hairnet, the stealthiest weapon used to eliminate a head of state this side of the doohickey that did in Abe Shinzo. To Sansa's credit, she is very quick on the uptake here, even if she's horrified by what's happening. It takes no time for her to tie the missing gemstone to Joffrey's death. She's even quick to start questioning what else may be amiss with the story Sir Dantos has told her, though she ultimately misses the deception that Dantos was just a cat's paw. This was truly Littlefinger's work. Yeah, it's, it's a balancing act that George is, is doing with Sansa at this point, where, where she's still young, and she hasn't had many, many opportunities to learn much about, about politics and, and intrigue and so on. So she has these good instincts, but she can't precisely apply them because she hasn't been given a chance to kind of work through them in any extended way. Like, there's, there's no necessarily logical connection between the, the missing Amethyst and Joffrey's death. Like, we are, we're obviously coming back to it knowing that's very important, but if you take that out of the equation, there's no inherent connection there. It could just be a meaningless detail, but it's, it's a detail that demands explanation. I love the part where Sansa's, like, keeps thinking about it. Like, maybe it's not important, but then where is it? Why isn't it here? What's, what could possibly answer this? And Sansa remembers that Dantos insisted that she wear it, so she's, she's keeping these memories in mind and realizing that they're important in the, the, the moment where they finally become important, but she doesn't remember Olena messing with her hair. Instead, she just worries that, that Dantos is planning on abandoning her now, which doesn't really make sense. Like, why would he bother setting all this up and then just leave her in the godswood? She doesn't have quite enough info to put it all together. So I think George does a good job capturing science in this in-between state where she's learning how to manage herself in the Game of Thrones, but she's still, she's still young. She's still inexperienced at it, so she doesn't quite reach the truth. Sir Dantos lives up to his Florian the Fool cosplay, drunkenly laughing and giggling as he stumbles Sansa towards the escape route. The wind making a noise like Joffrey sucking up air is one of the more arresting similes in this book, a natural reflection of the man-made horror she just witnessed. Dantos gives her the latest developments on Cersei and Tyrion, and horror really starts to stink in when she realizes she will be accused alongside Tyrion. One heart, one flesh, one soul. Deeply and sadly ironic that the only bond that will endure between husband and wife is the false accusation of regicide. But again, Sansa is very quick to connect these dots, showing her time at King's Landing wasn't entirely arrested development. 
Like thieves in the night, they slink out onto the cliffs over the water, reminding me a lot of Eddard and Littlefinger all the way back in A Game of Thrones. I just want to call out the single shot from the television show Game of Thrones, where a hooded Sophie Turner looks back at King's Landing one last time, a spectacular image that's been seared into mind since that episode aired. Famously echoing the painting A Girl with a Pearl Earring. And yeah, that is that is the definitive Sansa shot. Whenever I, th- I think of her character, that's just that's been seared into my mind, too. That is just is Sansa in a nutshell. Danto's drunkenness also feels like a nice coherence to the Tyrion chapters we just witnessed. If Tyrion 8 was getting drunk, then this is the hangover. And even though Dantos is in the pay of Baelish, I do think he is mostly honest in wanting to be a knight in this moment, just to have one good deed to his name. Despite being disabused of his position and being forced to confront the ugly truth of monarchy in the form of Joffrey, Sir Dantos Hollard still clings to an ideal Westerosi chivalry, if not a code to live by, but perhaps a goal to aspire towards. We see this attraction runs deep, as evidenced by kids like Bran wishing to become a knight, or Jamie thinking the loss of his hand is a good time to start acting like one. So yeah, when Dantos is in tears and saying Sansa actually saved him, both literally and metaphorically, I, I do take the drunkard at his word. Yeah, really well said. Uh, Littlefinger tells Sansa that eh, Dantos was just a liar, never worthy of her trust, certainly not worthy of her grief. He says that because he wants Sansa to be cynical and paranoid, never again trusting anyone besides, of course, Littlefinger himself. But never forget, Dantos is only lying to Sansa because Littlefinger told him to. The Mockingbird isn't any more honest than the Clown, they're both all about performance, putting on a show. And I think you nailed it that the reality is that Dantos is simultaneously manipulating Sansa and telling her the truth, which is human nature. Martin Scorsese has a new movie out, and so the, the dreaded discourse has returned from the dead. But while a lot of the takes are very, very stupid, it makes sense that people are disturbed by his movies because that's deliberate. Most of Scorsese's movies, by design, provoke complicated questions about audience identification. How do we feel about Travis Bickle after the press anoints him a hero at the end? How do we feel about Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull when we cut between his victories and the ring and his failures literally everywhere else in life? How do we feel about all sorts of characters in Goodfellas or The Wolf of Wall Street indulging in temptations most of us either resist or more frequently just don't have access to in the first place? Look at uh, Nicky Santoro in Casino, the character played by Joe Pesci. He commits brutal acts of violence, even more than the Joe Pesci character in Goodfellas, who honestly <laughs> looks soft by comparison to the shit he does in Casino when he like, puts the guy in the vice and pops his eyes out. Mm-hmm. And he is also a loving, attentive father. No matter what Nicky does all night, Robert De Niro tells us in, in voiceover, he's always home in the morning to make his son breakfast and kiss him on the cheek and tell him he's great. The temptation is to think that one of these cancels out the other. Like, one is the real Nicky and the other is just a mask he wears. The reality is that a good deed doesn't wash out the bad, nor a bad deed the good. The reality is that they're the same guy, and that also applies to Dantos. He is a true knight, chivalrously risking his neck to save the princess who saved him, and he is also selling her to a supervillain for drinking money. Both are true. Sansa makes the climb down, and someone once told me that the climb is all there is. But the repetition of one more step, one more step, especially in light of Sansa's earlier tears, had me thinking back to sobbing Sam st- taking another step. Yeah, it's like a it's like a miniature version of Sansa uh, descending from the Eyrie with Sweet Robin and a Feast for Crows. I read that that mm-hmm. part a couple days ago, and just very much like an extended, elaborated version of the scene here. Sansa's always always climbing or falling. Those are two big movements in her story, as with some other characters. And it's very it's it's helpful here. It's kind of empowering scene on its own because it's getting her out of that 
that dream, that nummy, that numb kind of dream state by focusing on physical tasks. Here's what you can do, you know, step by step with your hands. But it's also it's also a descent. It's a descent into the underworld, which is something I'll talk more about in the next answer chapter when we get some some very on the nose uh, underworld symbolism to to indicate what this kind of next stage of Sansa's story is going to be like. Peter Baelish enters stage right after a fairly long absence from our narrative. Not long enough. (laughs) That's true. Uh, (laughs) He's first seen here wrapping a cloak around Sansa, which sticks out in my mind given we've seen three weddings in the last 20 or so chapters. This could be a hint at Littlefinger's greater intentions for Sansa for himself, Hmm. or just how he plans to use her generally towards his own greater ambitions. And Littlefinger immediately reestablishes himself as a cutthroat utilitarian, killing off Dantos and giving Sansa some flimsy excuse about why Dantos is unreliable, which I don't think is necessarily incorrect, like we just (laughs) talked about, but that doesn't make it any less vile, and nor does it calm Sansa. She may have gotten out of the frying pan only to land in the fire. Uh, that's a great point about the cloak, all the, all the constant repetition of, of removing the maiden's cloak, attaching the husband's. We saw that, of course, at, at length with Sansa and Tyrion. That's, this is Littlefinger's own version of that. Uh, a Song of Ice and Fire has a huge cast. And like I've said before, I think that when George pulls someone in from offstage, he generally does a great job of reminding us not only who they are, but what they're like. Littlefinger established himself as a major player when he betrayed Ned back in book one. But his main move in Book 2, securing the alliance between the Lannisters and Tyrells, happened offstage, so we couldn't kind of connect to his character or just understand his character more. We just kind of learned about it afterwards. Since then, we have seen Littlefinger become the Lord of Harrenhal, in name at least. We've seen him secure the Lannisters' support for his proposal to Lysa. But those moves haven't, on their own, changed the game. And even on first read, they clearly come off like stepping stones to something else. And now we're finally getting to that something else. For the first time, we're seeing Littlefinger operate outside the capital. And while he's certainly never being 100% honest with Sansa, he's revealing a lot more to her in both personal and logistical terms than he ever did for Ned or Tyrion. These late Sansa chapters in Storm of Swords are Littlefinger's equivalent of Varys' big speeches to Ned and Kevon Lannister. It's the the clearest glimpse we see of what this non-point-of-view schemer character is up to. The difference being that Ned and Kevon were both about to die, so whatever they learned, they took with them. Sansa isn't just our POV on Littlefinger. She is the object of his conspiracy, and also his protege of his sorts, as we'll see with with Bran and Bloodraven, and with Arya and the Faceless Men. The Starklings each kind of have their own uh, semi-trustworthy mentor figure in the middle of the story. Through the published books, we never see Littlefinger again from any other POV besides Sansa, and it, it might remain that way until he dies. It's important to keep in mind that everything he does in that POV, in Sansa's view, and therefore for the reader is calculated to mold her into the person he wants her to be. Even when Littlefinger has to improvise, like killing Lysa, which I I don't think he expected to do that day anyway, he folds it back into the narrative he's trying to create. And that narrative is us against the world. You can't trust anyone else, Sansa. They'll sell you to Cersei, who will kill you as revenge for Joffrey. You can't believe in anyone else anymore. Only me. And Littlefinger uses Dantos as kind of proof There's your true knight, there's your protector, bleeding out in a burning boat. I don't think anyone is ever going to know how Dantos died. It's a brutal object lesson in how songs and stories can be manipulated. Dantos may have come to believe in himself as Florian, like we were saying earlier, but he didn't come up with that, any more than Joffrey came up with the jousting dwarves at his wedding. It was Littlefinger all along, just as it was Littlefinger who got Lysa to kill Jon Arryn, and probably got Joffrey to kill Ned. The images Sansa absorbed as a child and believed in on an almost spiritual level were lies, or so Littlefinger argues. 
Dantos ultimately cared more about getting drunk than being a true knight, and would have eventually betrayed Sansa. Which, yeah, is, is probably <laughs> true. But here's the thing. We will never know what Dantos would have done, because Littlefinger had him killed instead. When Sansa breaks down and says her famous line about it all being lies forever and ever, everyone and everything, Littlefinger says he's the only exception. But he lied to Dantos all this time about what would happen here. This is a dynamic familiar from real life. People who tell you that social norms are bullshit are not always bold truth-tellers. <laughs> Sometimes they're seizing on legitimate distress and despair in order to spread their own lies. Some lies can be told with a good purpose. Sansa thinks that in A Feast for Crows, Sam thinks that about uh, pretending Gilly's child is his, and along those same lines, the best example is still buried in the subtext, Ned lying to the whole world, including Catelyn, that John is his son, a lie told for a good purpose to keep John alive. Littlefinger's lies are bent toward demoralizing Sansa, so he can rebuild her in his image. That's what it's all for. And that undercuts Littlefinger's deconstruction of societal values, even when the deconstruction itself is proven correct. Extremely, extremely well said, sir. Thank you, Muchly. I did kind of seize on Baelish's use of the phrase, the perfect cat's paw, on the heels of George revealing the cat's paw dagger mystery in the previous chapters. Joffrey, one of our major Act 1 antagonists, chose his cat's paw poorly and recklessly. He probably just looked at a crowd of beggars and picked one at random. Littlefinger, an Ascendant Act 2 antagonist, is a wholly different beast. He watches, waits, and finds the perfect tool for his needs. This is not to give Baelish praise. He's a vile, malicious man. He just executes his cruelty in a less overt way, which makes sense because his power doesn't flow from a crown on his head, or not yet by his own estimation, but rather the softer power of marriage, politics, and finance. Baelish here also describes Varys' little birds as little rats, one of our first nods at who Varys is actually using for his spy network. He also reveals that he himself hired the dwarf jousters, which I'm sure he knew would lead to chaos between Joffrey and Tyrion, and help provide some cover for the poisoner. I mentioned last time that a poison plot is often executed to make a death seem accidental or natural, like John Aaron, but that Cersei's accusations of Tyrion quickly nipped that in the bud. It is possible to me that Baelish did not mention the dwarf thing to the Tyrells, that was his own flourish to heighten the emotions and perhaps help finger the little guy for the king's death. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> and yeah, that's, that's Littlefinger in a nutshell, which is what makes him a frustrating character, but also fascinating, is he has this... This mix of really clever and really childish. Like, he's a brilliant conspirator on multiple levels. He comes up with stuff that no one else in the story is going to come up with. But it's all just in service of getting the prom queen he was denied. Varus, it at least has an ethos. It's, it's one full of blind spots, but it, at least it's a vision of Westeros different from how it is. Whereas mm -hmm. Littlefinger, you get the sense he, he's fine with everything except his, his personal situation. And it's, that makes for a, this kind of jarring relationship to him as a reader, I think. Like, here, we're, you know, we're getting swept up in how Littlefinger has been behind the scenes, orchestrating events, manipulating Sansa from, like, early on in the second book, all the way back to that note she got, as he says here, come to the Godswood tonight if you want to go home. That was him. He got exactly what he wanted. He used the most powerful people in Westeros like pawns, and it looks like he's getting away with his hands clean. But then Sansa asks, why? The big why? And that's where the mastermind image falls apart. Like, Littlefinger's answer, I, I did it because it makes no sense. That is some microwave sub-joker <laughs> bullshit. Like, it's like Littlefinger jazz. It's the notes you don't hear. It, it, it shouldn't be taken literally. Think about what we know. Why did Littlefinger help kill Joffrey? What, what did he really get out of that? It's all Sansa. Not only did Joffrey's death provide the chaos to cover for Dantos pulling Sansa away, 
But now that Sansa's gone, everyone thinks she helped Tyrion kill Joffrey, or maybe just did it on her own. So she has to take a new name and hide herself. She can't rely on anyone but Littlefinger. But he can't tell her that's why he did it, so he has to pretend it was to fool his enemies. Which makes no sense, because his enemies, you know, basically Varus is who we're talking about there, don't know Littlefinger had anything to do with it. Like, if Varus knew Littlefinger was involved in Joffrey's death, he would know exactly where Sansa is. And I really get the sense he doesn't. Otherwise, he would have made more of a move to get her back. Like, he's sending out people to look for her, but he's not telling them, hey, all of you go to the Vale. So it really makes no sense that Littlefinger's like, you know, he's shadowboxing. He's trying to fool people. I think that's just his cover because he doesn't want to tell Sansa the reality is, no, I was just trying to find a way to kidnap you. Once again, Sansa Stark finds herself in a situation where she has what she thinks she wanted. Reprieve from King's Landing, reprieve from Joffrey, away from anyone with the surname Lannister. Then why was she scared? Well, I can at least partially answer that. Creepy as fuck. He's pontificating (laughs) about the Game of Thrones while projecting his unrequited feelings for Catelyn Stark onto her 13-year-old daughter. As the kids say, that all gives me the ick. Just like Tyrion uh, got what he thought he wanted with Joffrey's death, now Sansa gets what she thinks she wants with uh, Escape from the Lannisters, but it doesn't work Mm -hmm. out for either of them. And yeah, this is at the end of this chapter, we've already gotten hints again at why Littlefinger is doing all this, but this is where George really starts to pry him open psychologically. Because it's not just that he's projecting Catelyn onto Sansa, but he's also projecting the ideal daughter he could have had with Catelyn mm-hmm. onto Sansa. So, so she is simultaneously young Catelyn and the daughter Littlefinger could have had in the present moment if he'd gotten married to Catelyn all those years ago. And Littlefinger himself doesn't seem to realize he's doing that, that he's constantly flip-flopping between those images of Sansa. And it's, I think that's because, I think these roles are, are so easily blurred together for him because roles are all they are, because he's never... He doesn't have what Ned has, the, the lived experience with Catelyn. One of my favorite movies, a British movie, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, back from the 1940s, about a very stolid, he's got like a Wyman Manderley mustache, Colonel Blimp does, very stolid, old school British guy. And uh, early in the movie, he, he falls in love with a woman, but in the process of introducing her to this German soldier, and they fall in love and they get married. And later in life, when he, Colonel Blimp reunites, that's not actually his name in the movie, but I like calling him Colonel Blimp. When he reunites with his German friend, he shows him this portrait he had of, of that woman who married the German. And a, por- a portrait of her as a, as, a, as a, actually, no, it's a portrait of the woman Colonel Blimp married instead, who looks exactly like the woman he fell in love with. And he has this portrait of her as a young woman. He shows it off to his German friend. Doesn't that look just like Edith, the woman you married, the woman I fell in love with? And his German friend goes, yeah. I guess, but you got to remember, I grew old with her, so that's not the woman I remember. And you realize, oh, Colonel Blimp has been fixated on this younger image of this woman he fell in love with and married someone who looked just like her so he could hold on to that image, but he didn't really know the person. And that's what we get with Littlefinger here is this this, this uh, game of projection. Remember, he thought Lysa was Catelyn in bed. Obviously, he was drunk at the time, but that's that's the pattern with Littlefinger is he's, these women kind of blur together for him because they're not completely people they're just uh, ideals he's trying to obtain and this is where we see that for all Littlefinger pokes fun at Sansa's worldview derived from the songs and the stories etc Littlefinger has not actually grown up he is still that teenager who lost out on love ironically this is what he has in common with Ned that he hated so much and, and many other members of their generation the Roberts Rebellion generation every one of them frozen in time Jamie, Barbary Dustin, John Connington broken in some way that seems to them unfixable 
Littlefinger might be a, a totally different character if he had his own POV chapters. Maybe he'd be more like Jamie. But then again, George wrote it this way for a reason. Focusing our understanding of this man through the lens of a woman he is trying to remake. And the other movie that comes up when I think about Littlefinger and Sansa is, is Vertigo. Hitchcock's Vertigo. One of those movies that kind of got a, a mixed reaction at the time and later became kind of coronated and crowned as a masterpiece. In part because it's a really complicated plot, but it's also just really emotionally upsetting. Like this this guy who who thinks he's on the... I'm going to spoil Vertigo if you haven't seen Vertigo. <laughs> so uh, everyone, you know, pause and skip ahead. There's a, I'll, I'll just keep it simple. There's a guy who's, who's chasing a woman, who is pursuing a woman as a detective. He's been hired to be a, a PI on this woman. He sees, he falls in love with her. He sees what looks like her committing suicide. And then later he sees another woman that looks kind of like her. And it gradually develops that she's the same woman. She was hired to play that part. And so he's trying to remake her into this woman she kind of already is. And it's that just that, that hall of mirrors effect that I think you also see with Littlefinger, where he's, when he's talking to Sansa, it's not clear who he thinks he's talking to, whether it's young Catelyn or the daughter he wished she would have had. And that, I think that's even creepier than if it was just a desire for Sansa. It's also this weird, nostalgic, romantic fantasy. So moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, Sansa and Dantos rendezvous with a man named Oswell, who Sansa vaguely recognizes in terms of his features aligning with some other people we've met who we know as the rereader as the Kettleblacks. Kettleblack Ascendancy will go hand-in-hand hand with Littlefinger Ascendancy, I guess, as the Kettleblacks will play a much bigger role, even starting in the very next Jamie chapter, as we'll see. One of those elements where I'm not sure what the payoff is supposed to be necessarily or what the plan was, given that the Kettleblacks uh, at least temporarily go down pretty hard once the, uh, once the Sparrows come to power and unseat Cersei. But yes, that's, uh, that's something George lays the groundwork for here by Oswell being very familiar looking. And then we get the reveal that the, the Kettleblack knights who, who, already, <laughs> who were already double-crossers <laughs> at this point in the story, like they were already, already betraying, already selling Tyrion and Cersei kind of back and forth to each other. And now we learn, no, there's a whole other extra third thing. With Littlefinger. It's like the Kettleblacks, they must be, they're just getting paid by everyone at once. What a, what a good deal until it's not. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on with them because it feels like the Shaggy Dog thing where I feel like the whole point is in the name. Like at some point there's going to be a pot calling the Kettle Black. It's just how the hell that's going to play out. I'm not entirely sure yet. That is a deep, deep in-joke buried in there by George. So on to a theory and discussion. And I've been talking about Littlefinger as a, as a non-POV and the ways that George kind of gets us into his head, but also necessarily keeps us at a distance. And like Varys, part of, I think, the fun of reading his character is trying to trying to suss out what his plan is at any given point. So I think let's let's check in with Littlefinger's master plan. What is it? What do you think his plan is for Sansa at this point, uh, pre-Lysa murder? Because <laughs> we see how things unfold after that. But what do you what do you think what do you think he's going for right now? Yeah, that's that's a tricky question because I do think in the end he did plan to kill Liza at some point or just dispose of her in some fashions. Because um, sure. I, I think off to the Silent Sisters with you. I, yeah. I think he's tuned in just enough to know that she is also somewhat unreliable in the same way that he would think of Sir Dantos as being unreliable. Um, that's a good point. So yep. I do think like. This we kind of just maybe kind of see his plan on speed run here. Like I think he would hope to kind of <laughs> consolidate power and get a little bit more buy-in from the Lords of the Vale before killing Liza, because that becomes a somewhat uphill battle for him, um, having to kill Liza first and then try to win everyone's loyalty when now his best claim to any kind of rule is gone. Um, and I think that would give him, you know, the Sansa and Harry the Air thing. I think is already there because. He had to do some research to figure out who the fuck Harry the Air is, probably, right? Um, so that has right. to be something that wasn't like half baked. Like that was always part of the plan. I just think he was hoping that he wouldn't have to 
kind of do like kind of the backroom wheeling and dealing with, you know, like the Corbrays and stuff, as opposed to something where he could leverage Liza while she was alive to kind of establish those relationships, get some buy-in into his agenda, uh, maybe not lead so much on Robin Aaron has to be the guy, you know, if Liza Aaron was still there, he could kind of still rule through her. But um, ultimately, I think it's the same plan. It's just things kind of got thrown out of order um, and that became a somewhat harder challenge for him. But I still think the plan is essentially what he's got going right now. I think you're right. George kind of has Littlefinger allude to that towards the end of A Feast for Crows when Littlefinger says, man, Cersei is, is breaking down so hard and so fast. I, I was hoping to have a few quiet years to handle this, but clearly I got to make things move faster, which people have also, I think, correctly taken at George kind of poking fun at himself <laughs> and his own writing process. But agreed, it, it, it makes much more sense for Littlefinger to try to rule through Lysa for a while because the Lords of the Vale begrudgingly accept Lysa's authority, even though, as Sansa will think about uh, towards the end of this book, like, some of them are close to open rebellion because she didn't help out Rob as they wanted her to, but close is not the same as going through with it. At the end of the day, Lysa kind of has the Aaron, has the Eerie, has the authority. That's where power is always derived from in the Vale, and otherwise the Lords are just left fighting each other. So, and that's that's a lot more stable, though, if you have Lysa, who was an adult and chose to marry Littlefinger than Sweet Robin, because with Sweet Robin, it's like, well, someone's going to rule while he's a kid, someone's going to be his regent, and that's that's more of a prize. Obviously, after Lysa gave her hand to Littlefinger, that's how people hoped to rule, and the veil originally was through her, but he got to her first, so I agree, he was probably planning on keeping it quiet for a bit. Who knows what would have been the plan with Sansa, because Lysa wants to marry her to Sweet Robin, and I... Yeah, I could see Littlefinger either opposing that or like going along with it. Like maybe that'll work for the moment to keep the veil on my side. I can get rid of him later. He's not going to be consummating that for a while, obviously. Maybe he was kind of open open to allowing that, although his plans for Sweet Robin now seem to be pushing it in a more active murder direction <laughs> now, that he, now that he had to get Lysa out of the way. But I, I like the, the Lysa-Dantos comparison because, yeah, they're both kind of unreliable assets. And uh, Littlefinger even kind of says the same about the Kettleblacks in Sansa's next chapter, that once they got the Kingsguard cloaks, I started to lose a little bit of my control over them. And uh, Dantos, Littlefinger could manipulate to the very end. But Lysa, as we'll see, the, the ultimate problem with Lysa is that she can't from Littlefinger's perspective, is that she can't handle the sight of him with Sansa, which was, I think, a blind spot on his part that he brought Sansa along and was and was trying to kiss her uh, in the eerie. Like, that's that's what sets up uh, Lysa's downfall. And that's Littlefinger's weakness, not only in a moral sense, but a logistical sense. That's what he exposes. That's what hurts his plan and forces him to improvise and almost loses control of everything. So that is going to wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords, Sansa 5. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to drop us a rating or a review in your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps us find new listeners. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access to our regular episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, etc. at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Blue Sky, at Port Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb, and you can find me at that name at Twitter and Blue Sky. So, next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, Jamie Lannister, remember him, returns to King's Landing and reunites with his sister, it goes great, and his father, it goes even better. Um, sure, we'll say that the one where they have sex over his dead son is the one that's... <laughs> Let's see, yeah, we'll have a competition next time. Which which of these scenes goes worse <laughs> for Jamie with between Cersei and Tywin? There's the yeah, there's the there's the running near the there's the son's corpse, but then there's there's Tywin going from you are my son to you are not my son in like literally thirty seconds. That is that is some amazing Lannister dysfunction on display. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time in Westeros for a Storm of Swords, 
Jamie Seven.